You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome everybody, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio. This is episode number, let me check the number there, I think it's 499. Continuing on from last, the last program we were looking at, looking at creeds and confessions. The last two programs have been on creeds and confessions and we've been largely getting into, in the last program, looking at what does it mean to swear to... The either the Westminster Confession of Faith or whatever Confession of Faith your church particularly holds to. I'm obviously going to advocate for the Westminster Confession of Faith because I do believe it is uh, the the system of doctrine that is uh, the whole doctrine contained in the in in the Confession of Faith is a, is that which is founded upon the Word of God. So. We have to realize, yes, okay, yes, we believe in the Word of God. That is the supreme standard of, of all, above all standards. However, at the same time, it does not mean that we cannot have subordinate standards. If you think of subordinate standards in, okay, the ultimate authority in everything is God. He is the highest authority. But if you're a child, you you have a someone who you have to submit to while you're in the home that is your parents, as long as they're not telling you to do something that's contrary to the, to what God has said, um, and they're telling you to sin or something like that, then you, you're, you're, in that case, a person is su- to submit to their parents. Or if you're in a place of work, you have an authority lower than God, of course, but still the fifth commandment is there, and you are to submit to that boss. If you're a Christian, and you and you're the only Christian there, you should really seek, it's a great opportunity to be a witness by seeking to be the best employee and the most godly employee that you can possibly be uh, in that situation. Not an easy situation, of course, but uh, it is one where you need much prayer to seek to be a witness in that situation. So I was... I didn't expect it to go into two programs looking at the whole thing about oaths and swearing and and what it means to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, we're going to really try and wrap up with this program. And I may come back to this topic again. I may come back to creeds and confessions. I, I, I will. I'm no doubt about it. But just for now, um, we're going to wrap up this whole um topic and 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 this program will be probably most likely entitled and uh, church confessional authority and liberty of conscience so i don't really want to go over too much old ground but i will revise it for anybody who perhaps is just this is the first show you've listened to maybe you're just randomly scrolling across podcast world or wherever you know the wherever podcasts can be found um this podcast turns up in strange places sometimes and um Search engines that I never put it into. So, and uh, the whole point of it is this: if we're saying that a certain creed or confession of faith contains the truth, now the, the the creed can be very simple. It can be a creed that everybody needs to agree to. Maybe it's something like Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the Son of David. He is the prophesied one, the Savior of the whole world. If that is the creed or confession, that's a creed or confession, which every Christian holds to, or you're not a Christian. But then there's creeds and confessions where, take the Westminster Confession of Faith, that is something that if you're in, well, I believe anybody should strive towards it anyway, but if you're in a Presbyterian church, you strive toward that so that Perhaps if you're qualified and you're, you know, the, the qualification standards is laid out in First Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one, and other places like that, 
that if you're so called upon, you already believe these things. Because you shouldn't swear that you believe the Westminster Confession of Faith unless you actually do believe the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, the problem is, because of two things we're going to be looking at, or a couple of things we're going to be looking at, there's a lot of people who really don't believe the Westminster Confession of Faith. Not simpliciter and not in toto. Simpliciter means unequivocal, unqualified, without any equivocation. Equivocation means open to more than one interpretation. So a person who could, you know, wants to get around this simpliciter side of things will say, well, it just depends how you interpret it. If you look up a definition of the word equivocal, which our own, conf- the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 22 is against, when we're swearing vows, we're to do it in the plain and common sense meaning of the words and nothing else. But an equivocal swearing of a creed is basically saying, well, the words are kind of open to more than one interpretation. There's a very elastic, very broad, and very open and uncertain, shall we say, meaning to the words containing the creed. Now, I would say, if that is the case with the creed, the creed is pretty useless. The creed is there to unite us, and the creed is there to remove possibility for you know, having to re-debate everything. So if you say, well, well, for example, how we understand the Trinity and how that's laid out in the Confession of Faith, then we have to re-debate it, do we? Again, stating that God is one. He is one. He is simple. He, he is without body parts or passions. Do we have to debate that again? Do we have to debate that there's three persons? No, we have the, the subordinate standard that we've all professed to believe so that we don't need to kind of uh, get back into that, shall we say. And for the sake of unity and church order, we all go forward with the same idea of what the scriptures teach. And the way the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm going to be talking a lot about the Westminster Confession of Faith in this program because that's the confession of my faith and it's been the confession of my faith for how many years now? Nearly 10 years. I don't know how long it's been. And prior to that, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is basically a modified version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are differences in a more Baptist direction with that Confession of Faith, but I believe these, these truths for many, many years now. But we have to not get down the road of this kind of elastic meaning of words because if you if it's elastic and not in the plain and common sense meaning of the words the whole point of a creed is gone yes it depends on how you interpret certain scriptures and good godly men will disagree with how they may understand certain parts of Isaiah for example or certain parts of Zechariah or certain parts of Ezekiel maybe Maybe you don't quite line up, maybe one person's amillennial, one person's post-millennial, or something like that. Godly people will disagree on Revelation chapter 20. And it does depend on how you interpret it, and what kind of interpretive ideas or how you view the whole Bible fitting together is how you will understand that passage. But the whole point of a confession of faith is this that it is clear and laying out what we all agree. The minimum standards by which we all agree, and by all I mean all elders or deacons, I'm not saying that everybody who goes to a Presbyterian church needs to line up to all the confession of faith in the same way that an elder does. So I'm trying to distinguish here, and also in the last program as well, that the the standards of an elder are far higher, the standards of a deacon are far higher than the typical person in the pew. However, I'm not saying don't strive for that because it's good doctrine. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't believe it. There's good doctrine in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the, the teaching aids that are there, the, the shorter catechism and the larger catechism, and also the directories that go with the Westminster Confession of Faith help us to see how these things are fleshed out and look like in the real world. But So I would 
encourage you to strive toward that. Um, but if you're an elder already or you're a deacon already, well, this is far more serious for you. And I, it, it's, it's so strange that I even need to do this as a program. But it's the place where we're kind of at today. Because as Ligon Duncan said in his recent article, fairly recent now, um, owning the confession subscription in the Scottish Presbyterian tradition, which can be found in academia, I think it's .edu is the website. And there's an, there's an app you can get this on. He said one frequently encounters the idea that un, an unqualified, that's a simpliciter, unqualified subscription to the confession is the invention of contemporary right-wing extremists. So let's just talk about that. So if you are one of those people, like myself, who holds unequivocally to the confession of faith, all of it, or I would not swear to it, then such a person is going to be seen as extreme. That's that's the way it is in several denominations across the world today. So if you're seen as extreme, you're taking a hard line on whatever position it is, what's going to happen when everybody disagrees with you? We'll get into this in a second, and this is kind of where liberty of conscience is going to play out in that. But as Lincoln Duncan wrote, and I don't know where Lincoln Duncan wrote, lines up on these things himself or how how or even how consistent he is with this i just particularly like this article and anything i've read by him so far i i like and so this is not an unqualified thumbs up from Lincoln duncan but i do like this article a lot and it was very very helpful he wrote that great derision is usually heaped upon any suggestion that the confession should be held to as a whole so great derision at the moment and this is not just a case in one or two several denominations across the world fairly conservative ones as well where great derision is usually heaped upon any suggestion that you should keep all of it as you're swearing isn't that amazing so basically great derision and pressure is going to be put on you to not be a person of your word and what does a person coming in off the street? I remember, give me a little bit of my background, I was an atheist for six years before I got saved, and I remember thinking, those people don't, I always thought about ministers of the gospel, and preachers, and all these other people in leadership in the church, didn't believe what they were stating. That they always had stuff that they didn't agree with. They would say, oh yeah, they say that, they, they profess to believe that, but they don't really. And that's the serious thing. We have, the danger is we become exactly what the world says we are. Not keeping up. See, I can disagree with somebody. But if they have integrity behind what they say, there's even people in secular media, they might not even be Christians at times. And they may even have a lifestyle that I'm not quite keen on. But as they are so much more easy to respect, as it were, if they are people of integrity, that their yea means yea and their nay means nay, and that they are who they say that they are. That's, that's unusual today, but it, when it happens, it's, it's refreshing to see. Now, so, let's look at a few things. So, we're going to like talk about, so we need to swear unequivocally, unequivocally to the confession of faith. The confession of faith st states this, um, that's the Westminster Large, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 22, paragraph 4, an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. I'll talk about mental re reservation there in a second. It cannot oblige to sin. So we're just going to talk about those two things, which I think are being challenged left, right, and center in a lot of places. Um... And read the rest of the chapter to talk that looks at the seriousness of swearing an oath before Almighty God. Paragraph 3 says, Whoever take, taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act. Yeah. 
So it's a solemn act and it's pretty weighty. And I would encourage you to read chapter, all of chapter 22. But it says an oath. This is the oath that pe- many people, this people swear that they believe that this is what it says. This is the nature of the oath that they claim that they believe. And it says it's the plain and common sense taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation, without believing that it's open to more than one interpretation, without believing that it's elastic and broad and open and uncertain, without believing those things. Otherwise, the creed becomes useless, and the creed even realizes this. And it was aware David Dixon and other people who were Westminster divines of the day understood the dangers of equivocal swearing of the confession of faith. They also understood the dangers of mental reservation, a Roman Catholic error, in swearing of oaths. Anabaptists used to, were known for, for having an equivocal view of the creeds, because they didn't have a very high view of the creeds at all. And mental reservation, Roman Catholics didn't have a very high view of uh, Protestantism, but they would employ mental reservation and things like that when they would swear these things for various different reasons. Sometimes it was infiltration by groups like the Jesuits. Something also discussed too in Ligon Duncan's article uh, on this. So, so unequivocal. Now let's look at the the other phrase: how we're to swear oaths, especially in subscription to the to, to creeds and confessions in the church. Mental, what does mental reservation mean? So. It says, without mental reservation, mental reservation, so equivocal means kind of this, well, it can mean different things, depending on how you look at it, and all this kind of stuff. Mental reservation is, a, is different, it's reserving of something in one's mind. It can be a doubt, or a truth of what they really believe, but they hold it back, they don't voice it, and that makes one's expressed statements true. So whatever they're saying in public is true, but in their mind... If they said other things, people would go, oh, well, you don't really hold to this. So as long as your stated statements are true, but you're holding back mentally in your mind that which you don't believe, it could be a doubt, it could be something that you disagree with or whatever, and then that is someone not wanting to lie, at least verbally, but withholding the truth, that is seen as acceptable in Roman Catholicism. David Dixon a Scottish uh, covenanter of the 17th century. He was, uh, he wrote a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and he said this in question three, dealing with chapter 22. He writes this, is an oath to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation and mental re- or mental reservation? He says, yes. Well then, do not the Anabaptists err who maintain that it is lawful to swear to use words of equivocation. Yes, he replies. Do not likewise the papists err, who maintain mental reservation, to be lawful in swearing. Yes. Now, let's get into some of the, some verses now. And to look at some verses where it does talk about swearing of oaths. Psalm 24, and these are some proof texts that David Dixon uses in his commentary. Psalm 24, verse 4, states this, He that hath a clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. It's deception. Equivocation or mental reservation in O's is is a, is a deception. In, in Exodus 20, verse 7, this is another proof text David Dixon uses. Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. And one of the ways you can take the Lord's name in vain is oaths. Swearing before God. And it can you, you can use the Lord's name in vain if you swear 
equivocally or with mental reservation. It scares me how much this is probably common across the Western world and various different places. And I think people almost think it today unreasonable that everybody would hold to the entirety of the confession of faith. There are not many around today, let's be honest. I mean, in many places who would believe that in order to faithfully keep to the Westminster Confession of Faith, that you must keep to it simpliciter, as I mentioned earlier, which is on without qualification. Probably the accusation, oh, you're being very dogmatic or something like that. And in total, everything in it. Again, we, we mentioned some areas where people would Okay, they swear to the confession of faith, but not really holding to the confession of faith. Now, I do, I'm not a big fan of declaratory acts, which pull threads out of the confession of faith. But at least with a declaratory act, where they say they don't believe in a certain thing, don't be on the fence about it, because that's not good either. Having an open, you can believe this or not believe this, is a waste of time. That's not the point of view confession. Either take it out and say you don't have to believe it at all, it's completely removed, or... Don't have an open. I, I would advise people not have an open position on it. I'm not a big fan of declaratory acts. Have the whole thing because the whole system really fits together. And so, so that's by way of introduction. Some of this stuff has been dealt with in the last program, so I'm going to try and skip on because I do want to get this finished in this program. So hopefully, those definitions were helpful to you. Um, the next point we're really going to get onto, which does tie in with this, with unequivocal and without mental reservation swearing, and what happens when you end up with reservation or qualification, either written or mental, um, commenting on the the seventeen eleven formula of the Church of Scotland, and this in this formula, just to give you a flavor of it, it says this: I do hereby declare that I do sincerely own and believe the whole doctrine contained in the Confession of Faith, approved by the General Assemblies of this National Church, and ratified by law in the year sixteen ninety, and frequently confirmed by diverse acts of parliaments since that time to be the truths of God. And you do own the same as the confession of my faith, as likewise I do own the purity of worship, presently authorized and practiced in this church, and also the Presbyterian government and dis- discipline, now so happily established therein, which doctrine, worship, and church government, I am persuaded, are founded upon the word of God, and agreeable thereto. And I do promise that, through the grace of God, I shall firmly and constantly adhere to the same, and to the utmost of my power shall in my station assert, maintain, and defend the said doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of this church by Kirk Sessions, Presbyteries, Provincial Synods, and General Assemblies, and that I shall in my practice conform myself to the said worship, and submit to the said discipline and government, and never endeavor, directly or indirectly, the prejudice of subversion of the same, and I do promise that I shall follow no divisive course from the present establishment in this church, renouncing all doctrines, tenets, and opinions whatsoever contrary to or inconsistent with the said doctrine, worship, discipline, or government of this church." So that was brought in in 1711. And referring to the 1711 formula, Ian Hamilton writes this, or said this, whatever the precise reasons behind the adoption of the, of the 1711 formula, it seemed to impose to all ministers an absolute commitment to the doctrine of the confession. Moreover, a commitment that allowed no reserve or qualification written, or mental. 
very, very important. And this is something that for hundreds of years, the Church of Scotland, then the, the Church of Scotland Free, or Free Church of Scotland, then strove toward. It was one of the things that led to the formation of the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. The Declaratory Act was, was brought in 1892, within, this is in the Free Church of Scotland of the day, and they felt that they couldn't remain, you know, and uh, I think it was what, two ministers left in 1893, and formed the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And seeking then, you know, eventually that Declaratory Act was kind of revoked there, I think about 1905, uh, complicated enough history. Um, a lot of the 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 Free Church that was in the Free Church went into the United Free Church and then ended up eventually back in the Church of Scotland itself. But a faithful minority remained faithful to the Church, the Church's promise in their oaths, an unequivocal without mental reservation, written or mental, keeping to the confession of faith. And they continued on as the Free Church of Scotland from 1900 onwards. It was kind of, kind of a, would you say, a reforming from that time onwards. So anyway, that's kind of some of the history behind it. I bring up Scotland because, as Lincoln Duncan points out, that because the Scottish Church is very, very, important in understanding this subscription that is simpliciter, that's unconditionally, and in total, entirely, to the confession of faith. I apologize if I'm repeating myself a lot, but this, we, we got to get this again in the church. If we don't get this again in the church, we're going to, you're going to see splits, you're going to see more schism, you're going to see more disunity, and you're going to see more and more of the the horrible divisiveness that comes out of you don't get freedom by having elastic views of the confession actually what you get when you have elastic views of the confession if you get a, a qualification and all this kind of stuff from the confession rather than what some might call and i don't like this term a strict adherence you either keep to the confession of faith or we don't there's there's not really it's not really a semi or you know eighty percent or whatever. Either we keep to the entirety of it or we do not. Either we b- and one acid test is usually well. Today the acid test is becoming: Do you believe that God God is without body parts or passions? Something that every branch in the church believed up until fairly recently. Now, Ligon Duncan wrote as well. He made some observations and conclusions. This is in point four of page eight of this document. Many of the current objections to the to the practice of strict or unqualified subscription to a human document, like the confession, often heard in reform circles today are actually arguments against the use of creeds at all. And would have been frankly shocking to our Scottish ancestors. So, if you're listening to this and you feel like I am, I don't know, I'm not trying to attack anybody, I'm really not. We're in a crisis point across the reformed world. And we've got to realize it quickly. Because we're going to lose a lot. This is not an opportunity to go against, you know, maybe there's people in another denomination that are doing something you don't like and all that. This is not an, an invitation to go to war with people. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to work side by side with one another, encourage one another, but we also have to realize where we're at in the reformed world now I'm talking about now. Do we, are we, do we want to be reformed? Do we want to be men of our word? Because, again, like Ligon Duncan wrote, many of the current objections to the practice of quote-unquote strict or quote-unquote unqualified subscriptions, so subscription to a human document like the Confession, often heard in reform circles, they are actually arguments against the use of creeds at all. 
It would have been frankly shocking to our Scottish ancestors. When the Kirk, Duncan goes on to write, when the Kirk argued for the for the property of unreserved adopting of adopting the uninspired words of a creed as an adequate and binding expression of a biblical and hence eternally true theological proposition, such an act necessitated neither the equation of human language with Holy Scripture, nor the rejection or weakening of the Kirk, that's Kirk is a Scottish word for church, Kirk's commitment to the reformational axiom of sola scriptura. And just a little aside, my own little aside, sola scriptura gets often completely misunderstood. Sola means only, but it doesn't mean the only authority is the Bible. We'll all acknowledge, hopefully we'll acknowledge, that there's an authority in the home. The parents, especially the father. We'd all hopefully acknowledge that there's an authority below God in the state. There is, there are subordinate lower authorities laid out in the Bible. And sola scriptura means that the Bible alone is the highest authority, not the only authority. That's like solo scriptura. So, the Bible is the test by which all the other subordinate standards keep to. There's an authority in the church. In the church you go to, there is an authority. And it's the elders. It's the session. There's an authority over the temporal. People might look at that as financial, but it's not just financial, but the temporal needs of the church, things like that. That's the deacon, the diaconate. And their role is to relieve elders in those temporal matters to allow the elders to continue on in prayer and teaching and to focus on those roles of shepherding. There's no other body, there's no other form of church government allowed in the scriptures, those two. The diaconate, and if you don't have deacons, well, the elders end up doing the role. That's the scripture model. That's what's laid out in the directory of church government. That's a one of the documents produced during the Westminster Assembly. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith looks like when it's fleshed out. Now... Here's where we're going to get on to liberty of conscience. So, before I read this out, I want you to think about this. Say you're in a church, and I'm going to... Any example I'm going to use is something where it probably happens somewhere, and I'm not really trying to emphasize any particular church or say this church is worse than another. This problem that I'm talking about is an issue in many places. So please don't think that I'm targeting any particular group or anything like that. But just say you have an open view on your church as a very open view on, say, baptism. And I think that's important because, you know, I have friends of mine who are Baptists. I have friend, well, I am paedo-baptist. I, be- I believe that the children of believers or anybody who's recognized in the visible church you know, can be baptized. Um, so the candidates for baptism, we would disagree with pretty massively. And it, that's a pretty big thing, okay? Does it require a profession of faith of a believer at a certain age of his life, whether his or her life, whether they're six or whether 12 or whatever age they are? That's typically a, a Baptist view. Or... In which case, it'd be sinful and wrong to baptize an infant because they can't profess faith in Jesus Christ, can they? Versus, and you have in the same group, in the same church, and both are allowed to be elders and everything, deacons or whatever else, in leadership I'm talking about now. And there's also the other view of, well, you can be Peter Baptist as well. So you've kind of a 
either or. I do know I can I can even think of one church <laughs> that actually does this. I uh, don't agree with it, um, but this is this is by way of example. This is not really meant to be critical of that particular church, if you know the church I'm talking about. Uh, this is not something that happens in our own denomination, the denomination I'm part of. So, but just this, again, by way of example, by way of example. What happens when you have the person, you have a minister in a church, and he believes the Westminster Confession of Faith, he believes that only those, he believes in infant baptism. And what usually ends up replacing infant baptism is what I would see as an unscriptural addition to the church, which is kind of um, infant dedication. And so none of that is laid out in the confessions or creeds and all that kind of thing. That really is infant baptism. What happens when that minister says, I can't do that in good conscience? What happens when he's in the minority? What happens when it's unpopular, when everybody in his congregation is actually Baptist? What happens when maybe all these elders are Baptist? What happens when these presbytery are Baptist? What happens? You see where I'm going with this, right? What should happen? Presbyterianism is not the majority opinion of elders. It has to be the, obviously the Bible, the supreme standard, yes, but to be Presbyterianism in any meaningful sense of the word, it must be the documents which we swear to, this is not anything, there shouldn't be anything controversial about this, which we swear to are what is going to be implemented. Now, even in the church where I know that this happens, I think it's pretty much, they know. I think it's, it might be a declaratory act, I'm not sure. Not that I'm approving of that, I don't think they should do that. But then anyway, this is just by way of example. Ligon Duncan wrote, this is point number seven on page nine of that document he wrote, there is good evidence from Scottish church history to show that the loss of confessional authority in either the act of approval or formula of subscription does not increase freedom. You always think it increases freedom. Does not increase freedom, but rather it diminishes it. Having been freed from meaningful adherence to the establishment formula formulation, one finds oneself captive to the tyranny of a 50% plus one majority of any General Assembly, all the worse for its changeability. So, take a General Assembly or Synod or whatever the case is in your whatever denomination you're in. If you're not, if you don't believe in simple unequivocal, in total. Everybody believes different things. Let's be honest with ourselves here. Everybody believes, and nobody has any idea what anybody believes at that point. Imagine you have a room full of people, and they all hold to 90% of the document that we all swear that we hold to, but that 90% will be different with every person. They'll be in their own mind, they're strict. In their own mind, they're being faithful. But they don't believe that they have to hold to everything. And when there's areas of whatever, be that chapter 1, paragraph 8, that they can make it fairly elastic to what they believe currently. So you don't really get a settled view from the confession anymore. What, what will end up in that situation when you all have, well, we all disagree with different things and we all have different opinions of what the, the confession says, the majority will determine what that is, especially all the worse, as Duncan writes, for its changeability. And what happens to the minority in a denomination? That's the elephant in the room, isn't it? The minority may 
when it becomes extremely unpopular, their views, and it usually is, those who hold to the confession themselves feel maybe they can't remain. Maybe they, the fellowship gets affected by the, between them and the more the group that's going in a more liberal direction. And I use liberal not in an unbeliever sense, but I say direction and in terms of conf- creeds and confessions. I mean this phrase here. Duncan wrote, though relaxation of approved act, approval acts or subscription formulas may increase the liberty of those within a particular community who are out of accord with certain specifics of the confession, and hence initially allow for a greater range of theological diversity, at the same time such a procedure has a tendency to restrict and exclude from the process those remaining in the communion who adhere to former and more quote-unquote narrow views from the standpoint of the majority. Indeed, eventually excluding them from the privilege of liberty of conscience. And liberty of conscience will be denied somebody when they are in the minority and when push comes to shove. It does happen. It does happen. What is liberty of conscience? Liberty of conscience is laid out in the Confession of Faith that everybody swears to that uh, in chapter 20, paragraph 1, the liberty that Christ had purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, condemnate, uh, I think, let's not read the part I wanted to read, actually, sorry. God alone, paragraph 2, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word and beside it, if matters of faith or worship... So, baptism is part of worship, and if it becomes unpopular that somebody's, I don't know, wants to, you know, maybe have a family in a church and they want to do infant, infant dedication, and the minister says, I can't do that, I'm sorry, in good conscience, what happens then? The complaint goes to session, complaint, and then pressure gets placed upon the minister to go against his conscience. Just remind yourselves of Duncan's uh, point here. He says, where does it say it here? I'm going to read this this, uh, sentence again. So he talks about how relaxing of the proof accents. He can give freedom to people who don't believe the creative confession. But that's not the the freedom we want to give. At the same time, such a procedure has a tendency to restrict and exclude for the process those remaining in the communion who adhere to former and more narrow views of the standpoint of the majority, indeed eventually excluding them from the privilege of liberty of conscience. So, if you hold to all of the confession of faith, liberty of conscience may, say may, you may, and this may never happen to you, and if you're in leadership, may eventually be denied to you. Why? Because the majority says so, and you have to go along with that. And then it becomes majority rule, not rule by virtue of the creeds and confessions that they've sworn. Like I mentioned baptism, but also imagine if you have a situation where this has become a, a, I think, one denomination in another country where this has happened. They have recently gone away from exclusive psalmody, and if you have a minister who believes that it's wrong to bring any innovations into worship, especially with regards to um, outside of psalm singing, and you believe that you can't, you've studied the Word of God, you believe in the regulative principle of worship, you you believe that it applies to the second commandment, and how we approach God, and we cannot bring hymns or instruments into worship. And the denomination will say, well, well, you, you, you can have that opinion, fine. Then eventually it becomes unpopular, and maybe the people around you have changed their mind, or whatever the case may be, and everybody else wants hymns or whatever. And eventually, what could happen, I'm not saying will happen, it doesn't always happen, but what will happen? If they think you're taking a silly or extreme stand, well, the pressure will be put on to go in whatever direction the wind is blowing. Or, Christmas is a great example. 
Christmas is a great example of denial of liberty conscience. Uh, if you go back a couple of generations, it was pretty common for everybody in a lot of Presbyterian churches, a lot of Presbyterian denominations, to warn against the evil of adding holy days. Now, it's variations of views, and uh, actually the minority now are the most people who believe what the, the Directory of Public Worship says, not to add any festival days specifically mentioning Christmas and Easter, I think. Yeah, it's at the very end of the, the directory of public worship. Actually, just make sure that I am right on that. So directory of public worship, I have it here. Directory of public worship is excellent, by the way. So it says... When any such, let's talk about public day of Thanksgiving. Ah, here we go. Um, Touching days and places for public worship. There is no day commanded in the scripture to be kept holy under the gospel, but the Lord's day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days, vulgarly called holy days, have no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. So, and say, okay, you, you, you're a minister, you're an elder, or whatever else it is, and you don't want to have anything to do with festival days or so-called holy days. Oh, well, and they get repackaged every now and again. Oh, they're not religious holy days. It's a secular day. Of course it is. Um, and then there's pressure put on you because you're, you know, you're just the killjoy who doesn't want to go along with whatever party it is, whatever... I don't know, dress you up as Santa Claus or whatever else it is. And you say, well, that'll never happen. Yeah, it might not happen in your church, and there's different places they'll respect, maybe differences of opinion and all that kind of thing. But eventually, you'll get somebody not so understanding, especially if you're in an area of leadership. This person should go along with whatever. This happened, some of the, these examples happened historically. J. Gresham Machen, Aggressive Machen, I think is how you pronounce pronounce that second name. Christianity and liberalism talks a little bit about this. Uh, Now, you might say, what has liberalism got to do with not being completely strict to the creeds? Often, if if you read through Christianity and liberalism, a book written nearly 100 years ago, originally this was published in 1923, a classic. And I read this book years ago. I actually think I only read about half of it, two-thirds of it, and it didn't really click with me. I read it, I think it was saved a few years, and but I didn't realize, I think, how much this has, how helpful it is, regardless of what, how strong of a church you're in. Or, you know, with so many different experiences and so many different things, um, but in question 66 and question 67, this is the Erdman's edition, which was published back in 2009. He talked about this, and th- th- this does have an overlap with those who say, no, well, the creeds, well, the creed, well, what's the creed do? It points back to the Bible. So it's the Bible. That's the authority. And look, how many groups say that the Bible is the authority? Gresham Machen wrote, Machen wrote, It is not true at all, then, that modern liberalism is based upon the authority of Jesus. It is obliged to reject the vast deal that is absolutely essential in Christ's example and teaching, notably his consciousness of being the heavenly Messiah. And this, we're going to get onto the point relating to what we're looking at here. The real authority for liberalism can only be the Christian consciousness or, quote-unquote, Christian experience. But how shall the findings of the Christian consciousness be established? Surely not by majority vote of the organized church. Such a method would obviously do away with all liberty of conscience. And liberty of conscience, again, is that only God gets you to do something that you have to do. It can't be by popular opinion. It must be, thus saith the Lord, and at least have it stated 
in the in the church's creeds that here we go. But if you set those aside, it'll just be the opinion of the day, which opinion could change another five years, another ten years, and Machen went through this. In that day, when creedal authority was set aside for the popularity and the trying to keep of the certain numbers in the church of the day. Numbers were argued as well in that day for keeping people there. Machen wrote, continuing on, the only authority then can be individual experience. Truth can only be what helps the individual man. Such an authority is obviously no authority at all for individual experience is endlessly diverse. When one one's truth is regarded only as that excuse me, as that which works at any particular time, it ceases to be truth. The result is an abysmal skepticism. So you've got two options. We can either have a creedal coming together, saying, we agree this, these are the standards. Now, outside of the creed, you can have differences of opinion. Of course you can. Not everything that the Westminster Assembly could have put in, did they put in. They could have put in far more. But they put in what was needed, especially for elders and deacons, including the minister of the gospel, to be able to unify in order to have functioning church government and discipline and worship and other things without trampling upon liberty of conscience of those people seeking to follow the confession of faith. Now, now again, it's, maybe it's a bit of a slippery slope argument, but that's, that's how it can kind of go. That's how it can go. Open, loose, equivocal, open-ended, more than one interpretation view of the confession of faith does not mean more freedom. It means more freedom to do, for those who don't believe the creed. <laughs> not the people you want, really, to have more freedom. The, 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 the people who agree with the creed and want to assert, maintain, and defend purity of worship, and other things, and when to keep to the documents and adhere to the documents, their liberty of conscience will most likely be done away. So in a way, open only means freedom for one person, for one, one faction, those who don't want to keep to the creeds. Those who want to keep to the creeds will lose their liberty of conscience. So I'm, I'm trying to encourage two different groups. If you found yourself drifting, it can happen to all of us, by the way. Drifting away from creedal commitments, I urge you to go back to them, to restudy them and redouble your efforts in those areas, especially if you're an elder, a ruling elder or a teaching elder in a church or a deacon. That way, when the time comes, that you will know where to stand. You will have biblical and creedal convictions on difficult issues that often come across your table as a, as a leader within the church. For those people who currently hold to all of the confession of faith, keep studying. There may be areas you don't realize actually you might not be in conformity with the confession of faith. There's a lot of views that have come into the church, sometimes under the title of being Reformed, in the last hundred years, even by big-name Reformed teachers that are not completely confessional. Uh, in places, and what I would urge you to do, not not come to me or anything like that, I'm, wor I'm a work in progress as well, but read older men, especially 17th century men, grab hold of commentaries and whatever else you can get by the David Dixons of the world, Samuel Rutherford's of the world. Yeah, I know, Re Reformation Heritage Books hasn't published their massive multi-volume set on Samuel Rutherford just yet. We're all excited about that. Whenever that comes out, no pressure, Reformation Heritage books. But you can, you can if you can't wait that long, there are facsimile companies on abooks.co.uk that you can order facsimile reprints of Rutherford's works and other things. There are so many resources out there. Read the men, the godly men, 
who were involved in the confession of faith itself. Now I keep going to, yeah. I, I apologize, I haven't included my more, you know, my more Dutch-leaning brethren, but this this stuff would would obviously have a, a application to that as well. Read the men who were involved in the Belgian confession as much as possible, or at least men very close to the time who were keeping to that. Read older stuff. Read men of the, that day. Uh, find out what the church meant, especially for preachers I'm talking about now, by God is without parts. God is without passions. Why that matters. How you can, no pun intended, simply explain that to people. That God is infinite, therefore he cannot be made of parts. You can't like get different parts together, either physical or metaphysical, and eventually get to infinity. And and the God made of parts is dependent on his parts and also what keeps those parts together. So he wouldn't be, that would have effects on the satiety and things like that. Things taught in the confession of faith. I guess like what I'm saying is we're all works in progress. There's probably areas there's probably areas we're all weak on and we just don't realize it. How many references in the in the creed or confession are there to the light of nature? It's it's there, but we're not very good at it. Light of nature is not is an authority of itself. It's 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 natural theology. It's mentioned in the confession of faith quite a number of times, actually just give you one example in the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 1 just to give you one example if you're doubting me so although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable that's the very very beginning of the Westminster Confession of Faith the light of nature do we, do we know what that is? Six-day creationism. 24-hour days. Things like that. I mean, there's there's a lot of work to be done that I believe we need to do in ourselves rather than we... I guess what I'm trying to encourage that nobody's going to go away with this. Ah, look, the church is a mess. It's all... And I, hey, if they would only just listen to me. And it's ugly when that happens. By the way, we all have to do work on ourselves first and foremost. I can guarantee you, you may be listening to this and you may be getting angry saying the church does not believe what it says. And all, but do you have a creedal confession in your own church? Do you believe it all? You say, well, I'm not an elder. Well, I'm not saying you have to be an elder in order to believe all this because it's it'll help with unity. If you actually believe closer to everybody else around you, if you actually believe, for example, you go to a church and they sing the psalms, and I pray that you do go to the church that sings the psalms, a cappella, that you're not having a hunger and a desire to go for instruments. That you're pleased for what God has ordained in the New Testament church. Things like that. Aim to come to that point where, though you may never become an elder or a deacon, regardless of who you are within the church, that you would seek yourself in whatever capacity the Lord will use you to assert, maintain, and defend the purity of worship within the church. Your position may not be in leadership, but it may be in leadership in your own home. You can... To the utmost of your power, assert, maintain, and defend the purity of worship in a gracious way to your children and lead and bless the people around you in whatever capacity you have. Not trying to usurp authority or anything like that, but so I encourage anybody to seek after this, to be a blessing to the church. And also, when you do this, and when you come, when 
the time comes, you may be a great encouragement to leaders around you, making a godly stand. This has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.